and it's really sort of showing in the last decade the extent to which migration and your ability to manipulate the flows of people has become a cudgel for uh, autocrats or aspiring autocrats to try and pressure uh, liberal democratic states that are resistant to massive flows of migrants. Europe, that is to say, a continent far surpassing the European Union in size and historical depth, is in the midst of several crises, each testing its resolve and resilience in different ways. The political class, to begin with, is no longer trusted to carry out its duty honorably by the majority of European societies. This past week, the United Kingdom has further aggravated the sense of disillusion by providing the latest ethical scandal, or sleaze, in Westminster jargon. A slate of senior Tory members of Parliament, Sir Geoffrey Cox among them, are alleged to have trespassed the limitations on lobbying activities conducted whilst in office. Meanwhile, the European Union keeps careening toward another refugee crisis, although unlike the migrant crisis of 2015, these refugees are unlikely to be portrayed as victims. Instead, they're being funneled to the Polish-Belarusian border from, from places like Kurdistan and Afghanistan as part of a deliberate pressure campaign. Lukashenko, the authoritarian leader of Europe's pirate state, is allegedly being puppet-mastered by Vladimir Putin to retaliate against the EU sanctions on its eastern neighbors. Finally, the third crisis concerns energy, with Germany's use of nuclear energy expected to face out in the coming year and energy demand fast picking up, Europe's energy prices are soaring all over, casting doubts over the continent's post-COVID economic recovery and raising the prospect of widespread blackouts this upcoming winter. We discuss this and more in this bonus episode, the 42nd in our series, recorded with Julian Graham, a dear friend of the show. As always, please rate and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or over email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. And also, please consider supporting the show through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash UndecencyPod. Enjoy the show. So, in this medley of international headlines, or European headlines, we will be dealing with this week, I think we want to start with uh, the juiciest and the most embarrassing one, which is the entire Tory sleaze uh, headline. Um, I always love the Tory sleaze, and just the word sleaze is just so funny. Um, Julian, tell us what's going on in the UK. What's going on with uh, Jeffrey Cox? What is going on with the whole Tory sleaze scandal, which seems to be... Um, very damaging for Boris Johnson's um, prime ministership. Yes, very damaging. In fact, I think there was a poll today showing Labour is only one point behind the, to- the Tories for the first time in a long time. The proximate cause of, I should say, the latest Tory sleaze, because there are quite a few scandals in the Conservative Party right now, is the MP Owen Paterson, who left government as a minister and took up a job as a lobbyist for a chemical firm called Randox, um, or sorry, excuse me, a health diagnostic firm. Um, and then this company was awarded a contract for COVID testing. And he did all of this while working as an MP. So lobbying the government while working as an MP. And while this is technically allowed, there are very strict standards on it. You're not allowed to use your own office, uh, your parliamentary office, that is, to lobby the government. And Owen Patterson discarded virtually every rule 
about this. He was lobbying not only from his parliamentary office, he was lobbying using the parliamentary stationery. Um, so he would send letters to the government with his parliamentary letterhead on it. Um, just total disregard for any of the rules of lobbying. And after a lengthy investigation, during which I should probably mention, um, as it is used in his defense, uh, his wife tragically committed suicide. Um, when the report was published, uh, the Conservative Party uh, grandees rallied and pressured Boris Johnson into getting his MPs to not only reject the punishment uh, suggested by the report, but also to propose a new commission standard that would be run essentially by the parliamentary majority to investigate allegations of sleaze. So to sort of wrap it all up, Owen Patterson lobbying the government while working as an MP and the Boris Johnson government's ham-fisted attempt to get him out of trouble has uncorked a ocean of issues, the most embarrassing of which is the former Attorney General, Jeffrey Cox, who has been working for about £900,000 a year in for the British Virgin Islands, and in many cases from the British Virgin Islands, uh, which is, I mean, I would, I would work from the British Virgin Islands if given the chance, but if you're representing your MPs in Parliament, that's quite difficult to do. Um, in fact, I think the height of embarrassment for Mr. Cox was this week when sending a letter to explain his absence from Parliament, he sent it from the Mauritius. So it's all right for some, shall we say. Oh. And how widespread is this? Are we t- because you know, it, there's a few very familiar faces and familiar names, such as Jeffrey Cox coming up. But is this a case of kind of very high profile minority um, cashing in their, on their reputation? Or is this kind of much more widespread? With basically ever every MP, and is also is it, is it something which is limited to 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 the Conservative Party, or is it something that maybe Labour and the Lib Dems are doing, but so far they managed to stay under the radar? So there's two elements to it. One is that a lot of MPs do have second jobs. I think a fifth declare a second job, um, and while the most high profile ones tend to be the the grandees of the Conservative Party because they're more flagrant in some of their violations. It is not only to it is not only the purview of the Conservatives. So Keir Starmer has faced a bit of criticism for his work uh, before becoming leader of the Labour Party. It must be said, but while as an MP um, doing legal work uh, on the side and allegations of hypocrisy given his attacks on the Johnson government. But in addition to just a fifth having a second job, about two fifths declare income from some form of extra parliamentary work. In fact, the most amusing I think is the leader of the Scottish. The Scottish Conservative Party, excuse me, Douglas Ross, who is a part-time football referee, uh, which I think is quite a cool second job to have and one that would probably endear you to voters. But so this this is a, an issue that's quite widespread because there are no rules preventing you from holding a second job, um, and it's no, it is not just the the purview of uh, Conservatives, but they as the, the majority in the party and government, and then also the characters are individuals who've been around for a long time. Ian Duncan Smith, uh, or Sir Ian Duncan Smith, excuse me, I should use his honorific title, uh, as well as Sir Geoffrey Cox, David Davis, um, all of those Brexiteers and the, the Tory party grandees are the ones ensnared in the public eye right now, but they are not the only ones cashing in outside of their parliamentary jobs. Mm. And... Um... Why? Feel free to to jump in if you have any questions at any point. Yeah, yeah no, I think this is this is really so interesting, and I, I I mean, you know, it's it would be interesting to sort of see what the regulation is in in the UK in terms of what kinds of uh, lobbying activities MPs are allowed to pursue. But I, I think what is what is so interesting and in what you've explained, Julian, is is that you know you've you've got. I mean, I think it, you have a, a similar story. Uh, 
you know, running along similar lines in other countries of Europe where yeah. the center-right parties are more inclined to see their members take on lobbying jobs after leaving office. Whereas, you know, in, in, the, in the far left, for instance, what you have in the center left and the far left, what you have uh, as much as, much as if not more, is you've got politicians who go on to lobby for NGOs. And yeah. that supposedly is, is a less sleazy way of cashing in on your uh, former government service. But I think at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who you're lobbying on behalf of. What hap- what, what, uh, the, the reality of it, I think, in, in most of our countries is that people aren't paid enough to do politics. They feel like you know, being a politician is a thankless job. And a lot of the times they'll want to end their careers with a, with a higher paycheck and, and they, they go to lobbying or NGOs. And I think uh, you know, what's so interesting is how, I mean, I, I wasn't aware of those figures, Julian. What, what's so interesting about what you're explaining is how widespread it is that, that one-fifth of all MPs report an extra parliamentary activity. To me, that is staggering. Yeah, and part of it, you know, London is a very expensive place to live, as, as you both know. And commuting into London from your constituency in Cumbria or in the west of Wales or, or Devon is quite expensive as well, and it takes a long time. And so many MPs simply to finance, a lot of us will take on a second job just because it's the only way to pay the bills, or at least an easier way of paying the bills. Um, and this is obviously is not the first financial scandal to ensnare British politics. The Some of you might remember the expenses scandal, when, again, it was both sides, but the Conservatives seem to be a bit more egregious in it, would use taxpayer money and expense home renovations, uh, to a truly laughable extent, I think one MP tried to get expenses for his moat around his home. Um, but of course, renovating apartments. Mr. Mr. Boris Johnson, our current prime minister, got external money to renovate the flat at Downing Street. Now, you could argue that you know the prime minister does need to have a good home that's comfortable to live in and that he feels confident so he can do the job. But the concerns of how does he finance it? Now, Mr. Johnson has his own financial concerns with divorce uh, on the horizon and having to pay for that, hence his book deals. But this need for external income, I mean, it's a, it's a factor. I mean, I'm, I'm in Washington, D.C. right now, and a lot of congressmen are trading. Nancy Pelosi's quite famous for it, um, but she doesn't get in trouble for it. But lots of other members of Congress, they trade on information that they get that might be in the public eye, but they're making financial trades to pay for the fact that they have to fly across the country. And it's the same in the UK of it's so expensive to live in London, it's so expensive to travel that MPs simply take on second jobs as the only way to foot the bill for the life of being a member of parliament. Yeah, but could it just be that in generally, just just maybe not just in the UK, but more generally in, in maybe the West, um, jobs in politics aren't, simply aren't that attractive. You're not attracting the, the creme de la creme, the best of the best. And a lot of them are going to the financial sector, uh, going to management consulting, and they're kind of because this is not only but the prestige, but also the kind of financial um, remuner- remuneration you can get in these jobs is just out out of the, the league of uh, politics these days. Um, I guess my question is at this point: Do you think there is going to be a conversation about um, making being an MP more lucrative, as politically toxic as this might be, um, or no? Are, are we just going to see some very small, um, not very substantial changes and some kind of damage control from the Tory party. Well, I think the Johnson government would try to stifle any attempt at reforming the present system of 
outside jobs, at least, given the numbers and influence of those Brexit backbenchers who have all these second jobs. I mean, we saw the speed with which they could get the Johnson government to uh, push this Patterson report aside. So I'd be skeptical that they would actually implement any reforms or push for any reforms. I do think the higher pay would be would certainly be one way to do it. I, I can't remember which year it was. It was during the Cameron government, but MPs, there's an independent pay standard and they keep upping how much MPs should be paid in part because of the cost of living in London. And MPs, every time they have to vote on this, sort of get up on the cross and refuse to give themselves a pay raise while wages are flat in their own constituency. And it's kind of shooting themselves in the foot. But I think higher pay, and it's not necessarily just in, in Parliament. I think one example from Singapore, their civil servants get paid six, high six figures, low seven figures, if you're the top civil servant at the Ministry of Economics or the Ministry of Trade. And that's how you hire the best talent away from the global consulting firms, the global law firms, the global banks, is to simply just pay people more so it's an attractive career to go in. With politics, I don't think you could get away with paying MPs half a million pounds a year and then telling them not to lobby. I don't think any voter would go for that. But you could up the pay um, and then expense certain items such as travel and housing in London alone or simply make it easier to work remotely so that they can vote remotely and therefore spend more time with their constituents. But to your point on whether it's attractive, we've seen this twice now in the last five years, the tragic cases of MPs being killed doing the fundamental service of constituencies, first with Joe Cox and then this year with Sir David Amos. Um, not just the vitriol that you get on in social media from people, the constant press attention on your life, but now the very real danger of physical harm. Being an MP is becoming a harder and harder job. And the quality of people that you will get is going to decline the harder it gets. Because why would you make that sacrifice knowing not only that your your mental health is on the line, your personal relationships could be under stress, your financial situation could be under stress, but also your actual, your life could in some ways be in danger unless you're a minister with security details. So it is a, it's a problem that needs to be addressed, whether it's with higher pay, but I don't think the Johnson government will push on it but it's something that should be done for the better benefit of the country because you're just going to get worse people in government and it will spiral into bad governance and probably catastrophe. You could argue even not having the right people in place is part of why Britain's covert response initially was so terrible because we just didn't have the right people in place. Yeah, and there's also this whole transparency push which has made the private and personal life of, of MPs um, put under a lot more scrutiny um, and which is something you would not see as much in the private sector. I want to bounce back on a point that Jorge made, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, right-wing politicians and left-wing politicians have a very different approach to, to politics. I think right-wing politicians treat it a lot more like a job and they're in office or they're not. And if they're not in office, they're going to try and make as much money as they can. They've got a career to think of. And I think Left-wing politicians also have a, a career to think of, but they're much more in this kind of Gramscian vision of politics, and they will um, uh, be a lot more involved in education, a lot more involved in NGOs. They will try to find alternative ways, if they're not in office or when they are in office, to kind of shape the public debate. And I thought it was actually really interesting that a lot of politicians, even kind of middle-aged politicians who could still technically have a career in politics, are now deciding to leave the political sphere because they no longer think their ideas can can win mm. on that area alone. And I was really struck, actually, to see um, a lot of um, 
most of my examples are French because that's kind of what I follow the most. But in the past two years, there's four or five high profile left-wing politicians who have decided, I've like 40 or something, to, to leave politics. Uh, Cécile Duflot, she was a, a, a Green MP. Um, she was a, a minister under François Hollande. Benoît Hamon, who was the socialist candidate in uh, 2017, has decided to leave for an NGO as well. Uh, and there's so many of these examples, and it's kind of really striking, I think, about how left, left-wing politicians think about um, politics these days. Yeah, and that, I mean, that in some ways goes to the heart of the divide between the left and the right and their approach to politics. I mean, I'll speak for the British Conservative Party, uh, not necessarily others, but the British Conservative Party changes its fundamental views once every 15 to 20 years, because for them, politics isn't about principle, it's about power. And what can you get done in order to stay in power? I mean, Boris Johnson's economic strategy right, strategy right now with uh, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak would have been anathema to the Thatcher era conservatives. And indeed, yeah. And indeed, just to Cameron. I mean, Cameron with the, the age of austerity. Um, and conservative parties and politicians are constantly reinventing themselves. And so they can morph between someone who is working as a minister then loses that job and goes straight into lobbying, knowing they might well return to government because for them, it's more about being in a position of power than necessarily enacting a principle that you've campaigned on your entire life. Whereas I think for, for left-wing politicians, and I might be generalizing a bit here, um, the exception, of course, to this is Tony Blair. Uh, it's more about what, you know, what do you believe and we have to get this done because it's the right thing to do, not we have to get this done because we want to win the next election um and and you see you know tony blair gets a lot of vitriol for his work after parliament and he somewhat rode back on the advising foreign governments with questionable human rights records but um you know he's he's he went straight into the lobbying industry rather than working on the non-profit side i i can hear corbanisa shout at their podcast application right now saying <laughs> tony blair is not left-wing um, <laughs> um Julian, before we move on to um, a, a more bleak story, I think, with, with Belarus and, and, and Poland, do you have any kind of um, fun, sleazy anecdotes you can share before we move on? Oh, gosh. Uh, this is going to get me in trouble with my former friends at CCHQ. I mean, the, the main one, of course, is all the, the holidays that every MP takes. So your, your MPs are supposed to, if, if you're going on holiday, typically speaking, the joke in the thick of it was that you had to go on holiday within the UK because no one in your constituency would want to see you having fun on Mallorca or in Miami or, you know, just sort of on an island in the middle of the South Pacific. Um, Boris Johnson probably takes some of the best holidays of any recent prime minister. I mean, he's been on holiday to Miami um, and then recently at Zach Goldsmith's villa in Spain. The main benefit of this, of course, is that Zach Goldsmith is a member of the House of Lords. So he doesn't have to declare this as a gift. It's just him staying at the friend of a very, very wealthy MP who actually used to be my MP. In fact, um, he, gosh, what? He, well, he he was he was kind of a, an interesting character because he could just pay for everything out of his own pocket. So he never actually had any sleaze scandals um, because he was just so rich that it didn't really matter. He didn't need any money from CCHQ. He paid for all his campaign materials. He just paid for he paid his staff as extremely well 
it's probably quite a good MP to work for. Um, but no, I'm afraid I don't have any sort of salacious stories that haven't reached the, the pages of the mirror all the time. So. Well, that, um, before we move to, to, to Belarus, I, I think you're pointing out one risk of um, MPs not being paid well enough is, you know, any kind of ambitious, lower class um, um, student or, uh, or just anyone um, will not be attracted by that career because he he's not going to be able to sustain himself in the way that a Zach Goldsmith could. And I think that's definitely a risk. Yeah, and one thing that was pointed out, uh, it was an article by Kezia Dugdale, who's the former leader of the Scottish Labour Party, is that a lot of these MPs with second jobs are older, they're from the sort of safer constituencies where they don't really need to run the risk. But the red wall Tory MPs for whom a for whose constituents earning £100,000 a year as your second job is an obscene amount of money are not going to take this well at all. And so there is a generational divide as well as a, a geographic one. But in within the Conservative Party, the younger MPs um, from the Red Wall, who are the future of the party, then they're going to be much more critical of this sort of thing and probably pushing for changes yeah, in the yeah. future. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, one of the, one of the, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember when under uh, Ed Miliband's leadership, there was a very routine line of attack that you would hear prime minister's questions every Wednesday. And Ed Miliband would say, you know, the Tories are the nasty party. Mm. They're the party of austerity. They're, they're the party of Eton College. They're mm. the, the party of the Bullingdon Club. Mm. And I think one of the more interesting shifts that, that you'd seen in the UK over uh, the past you know, four to five years since Brexit, uh, uh, essentially, is that you're seeing a realignment of you know, the, the, the social extraction of Tory politicians, you're seeing far more Tory politicians, as you said, from the red wall, who are not, yeah. you know, your, your, you know, your Bullingdon club member, who are not your sort of entitled brats from, you know, wealthy Southeast, the, the, from yeah. the wealthy Southeast of England, you're seeing far more diversity in the career paths and the wealth of life from which the Tory party is recruiting its candidates. You're seeing people from, you know, uh, m middle, middle, mid-sized towns from the North, yeah. And, and I think that's one of the more interesting, I mean, the, the faith of the Tory party, I think, is changing yep. massively. Yep. Yeah. I, your podcast with Mr. Nick Timothy, I think, probably talks about this in far, far better detail than I ever could. Yep. Since Well, we, we, have, we have to thank you for this one because I remember pre prepping it with you uh, back then. But um, let's move to Belarus. Just one thing, Julian mentioned the thick of it. The thick of it is the equivalence of Veep. It was actually the inspiration behind Veep, the TV show, and is hilarious. If anyone has... Uh, time on their hands, uh, look it up on your YouTube or whatever. The thick of it is hilarious. Now, let's move on to something which is a bit less hilarious, which is the whole um, history uh, between Belarus and Poland, where Belarus has essentially been throwing uh, migrants on the Polish border. Um, Jorge, can you kind of walk us through the story? Sure. Well, I think uh, listeners of our show may, may remember we dedicated an episode to Belarus uh, a few months ago uh, with Vlad Davidson and Hanel Yubakova. Um, we essentially called the episode Europe's Pirate State. And that was shortly after Lukashenko, who has been ruling Belarus like a tyrant, uh, uh, he, essentially hide, he essentially sent his uh, state security forces to hijack uh, a blogger who was flying from Athens to um, some some other European capital and in, in I think uh, the Baltic states I think some yep. they, they were Lithuania Lithuania right yep. he was flying over Belarusian uh, airspace and Lukashenko sent uh, his thugs essentially to 
arrest of this blogger and uh, have he's, a, he's in a jet, uh, a fighter jet, yes. to force a plane to land in the Minsk. Exactly. So we we dedicated an episode to this, and we called it Europe's Pirate State. And uh, essentially, at the time, what really struck us was. Here is uh, a European country, obviously not a member of the EU. Lukashenko is very much, you know, uh, uh, very warm to Vladimir Putin, very close yeah. to Russia. Uh, I, I don't think there, that the, there's, there's any sort of serious talk of uh, accession to the EU in, in Belarus's case for now. But uh, here is a European country, at the very least, uh, which is essentially acting in, uh, like a pirate in, in the international state. In terms of international law, uh, Belarus has been really very much uh, sort of a, a, you know, a rogue actor. Um, and, this, and, and this is just to kind of set the tables up for this other uh, act of uh, uh, piracy, essentially, which uh, Belarus has been uh, undertaking with Poland. Uh, this is, uh, as, as Francois mentioned, uh, uh, you know, there's been uh, several thousand uh, migrants camping outside of on the Belarusian side of the Poland-Belarus border, and the allegations are that uh, Belarus has been essentially calling for migrants from Iraq, Syria, uh, Afghanistan, also um, to uh, to essentially you know to to come up uh, against the, the the Polish border and essentially using these migrants as a tool of hybrid warfare, and that's what I found so interesting is that we're uh, you know this is not the the first time that the EU is is um, is a subject to the to the to, to having migration. I mean, in fact, another episode that we dedicated to migration yeah. a few months ago. It was a bonus episode, and we yeah. talked about essentially a similar thing happening between Spain and Morocco. Morocco was in the Spanish enclaves of Ceuta and Melilla, which are these two uh, tiny cities in in, uh, in Morocco that belong to Spain. Morocco was essentially using migration as a pressure valve. It was yeah. you know essentially uh, funneling migrants into Ceuta and Melilla as a way to uh, exert diplomatic pressure on Spain because Spain had given medical attention to a, uh, a polisario uh, activist. So, so this is, an, I mean, long story short, this is just to say that, uh, you know, it, you know our, our podcast covers European issues as a whole, and I think we're seeing migration become really a tool of, um, of international conflict. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing rogue actors like Morocco and Belarus use migration against the EU. And one of the more interesting things is, is that what I found really interesting in, the, in this whole saga is that the EU has been pretty coherent around Poland. Poland has been asking for the help of EU member states to patrol the EU's external border. Let's just remember that Poland is a member of Schengen. And once these migrants make it into Poland, they're free to move uh, essentially to any other co country that is a, a member of the Schengen space. Um but uh, what, I, what I think has been pretty, pretty remarkable this time around is that EU member states have been pretty coherent in rallying around Poland. And Poland is, is being supported, I think, generally by, by, uh, by all member states. And, and, but I, what, I, what I have seen, and I'd love to get Julian's thoughts on this, is that the UK is one of the few countries to have actually volunteered huh. its uh, uh, police or, or, uh, or the military. I forget what it is, but they're, they're volunteering servicemen and women to go to Poland's border with Belarus to patrol it and make sure that there are no uh, breaches of, of that border. So I know that I know that the UK uh, since Brexit has been uh, kind of recasting its international alliances, and a huge part of that I think is uh, the UK has a, just a very very deep relationship with Central and Eastern Europe countries like Poland. I think there are ties of trade, but also migration that go far back decades. Uh, and and so I I, found, I thought it was really interesting. Maybe a uh, 
you've got some thoughts on this, the fact that, that the UK was supporting Poland in, in this uh, conflict. So I do actually have an interesting anecdote about this. In 2015, while I was working on the Conservative election campaign, shortly after the Tories won, it was the Polish election in which the Law and Justice Party came into power. And I remember at CCHQ, a lot of the Conservatives who were following, because there are strong ties culturally with, uh, with there are a lot of polls in the UK, of course, um, people were very happy about the Law and Justice Party taking power in, in Poland. So there is a, a political link there to the parties. And then today, of course, a shared affinity for stronger borders and enforcement of the borders. The British decision to send troops there is very much in keeping with support for Poland. Um, Britain wants to put a military base in Poland. It's a very important country for the British in terms of their foreign policy, um, both in terms of their strategy towards Europe, and then also their strategy in balancing against Russia, who is identified as sort of public enemy number one in most British security manuals. Um, this situation with Belarus, I, it was interesting you mentioning the Spain and Morocco one, which is one I was not aware of, but the it, it sort of makes me think a little bit to Turkey and the EU's payments to Turkey to try and keep migrants there as opposed to you know crossing over into Europe. And it's really sort of showing in the last decade the extent to which migration and your ability to manipulate the flows of people has become a cudgel for uh, autocrats or aspiring autocrats to try and pressure uh, liberal democratic states that are resistant to massive flows of migrants. Absolutely. And, and I think that the key part about what you've uh, j just said, Julian, is that I think rogue states like Turkey, like Belarus and like Morocco are well aware that they can funnel these migrants and use migration, as you said, as a cudgel of, yeah. of, um, of uh, conflict, because they know that the electorates and the, the people within the liberal democratic states have, um, you know, are, are sympathetic to the plight of migrants generally. So they can use the image of these downtrodden, uh, you know, badly clothed, badly housed migrants. Uh, they, they can use the image of that as, as a moral cudgel. Yep. They can make liberal democratic states seem, in the eyes of their own electorates, as um, you know, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, they, they can essentially uh, create a sense in the liberal democratic states whereby you know we're not taking care of these migrants, these, these poor migrants that are coming in through Belarus. We should we should go and help them. And so I think rogue states are very very uh, aware that they can leverage this against uh, liberal democracies. I, I want to make a parallel with. Um one of the last big refugee crises we had, or migrant crisis we had in Europe back in 2015, um, because most of the people right now between, the, um, between Belarus and Poland are not from Belarus, they are Kurdish, um, and they are, used, um, they are essentially imported in Belarus, and Belarus is using them as pressure on, on Europe. Um, these Kurds have a tragic fate, but as it is nowadays, they are not eligible for asylum in the EU. And in many ways, it's quite comparable to what we saw in 2015, where 10, 15% maybe were actually fleeing war and would qualify as refugees back then. But most of them were kind of economic uh, uh, migrants and they were not eligible. But given the kind of pressure uh, that Jorge just mentioned, the kind of liberal democracies, the kind of moral um, uh, cudgel you were describing, we accepted them. And what I find is really interesting is how much the discourse has shifted to the right since 2015. Because what Germany is saying nowadays is not Wirtschaft and das, we can, we can do it, let's welcome everyone in, it will be fine. What the Germans, the, the very same CDU is saying nowadays is 
and I'm going to be quoting from a general secretary of a CDU, he said, Poland is not only protecting the Polish border, it is also protecting the borders of the European Union. Therefore, Warsaw has the right to claim solidarity from Berlin and from Brussels. It's kind of a remarkable evolution from a party that accepted uh, a million refugees and migrants back in, in, uh, in 2015. It really shows how uh, far the discourse has changed. But I think another dimension which is really interesting is this specific migrant crisis has made everyone uncomfortable for different reasons. It has made people in the EU very uncomfortable because they were having a face down with Poland over the rule of law, the rest of it. And now, now they just kind of begrudgingly have to accept they should shoulder uh, to shoulder with Poland on this issue. Um, so that's the first thing. Secondly, people on the right and the kind of far right as well, which are usually very anti-migrant, are very also uncomfortable with this story because it's Belarus and Russia behind it pushing this crisis on the border. Um, so it's 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 really a case of everyone being really uncomfortable with what's going on. You've got kind of um, you know centre-left liberals who are kind of usually very pro-immigration who are all of a sudden very uncomfortable because I understand this is kind of hybrid war uh, waged by Russia. And on the same hand, you have people on the right and far right who are usually very anti-immigration, but also uh, familiar, uh, sympathetic to Russia and want to build closer relations to. Uh, and now all of a sudden have to be in a comfortable situation of um, refusing these migrant flows, but also not blaming Russia for it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think one thing as well, and you're talking about the normalization of this harder anti-immigration rhetoric, is the extent to which conversations around border walls I mean, we all remember the outrage and backlash when then-candidate Donald Trump talked about putting a wall on the border with Mexico. But today, you're seeing countries across the EU, including Greece, uh, asking the European Commission for funds to build border fencing and to make walls to keep out migrants. And it's become a sort of norm of immigration policy for several countries across the European Union. Well, yeah, I think... Uh, uh... Agree should run. Um, we'll have a candidate running as a um, uh, build a wall in Turkey. will pay for it or something, <laughs> something along those lines. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. and um, you were mentioning Turkey early on, and I think what we're seeing is the EU is increasingly capable of being blackmailed mm. by these kind of outside actors, and on many fronts. And there's going to be a very interesting segue to the next um, topic soon. But on 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 immigration with Turkey, um, and now Belarus, and they've been using that to pressure us. And it, so, and, and, and I, I thought it was so interesting when uh, you, you were talking earlier, uh, Francois, about, um, you know, the, 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 the tenor of the conversation on Poland essentially shifting rapidly from yep. condemnation of the Polish constitutional court ruling yep. to, uh, you know, full-throated support of Poland as a defense to use external border. But what I, what I thought so interesting, I mean, I, I remember we did our, the episode that we did uh, early, early on in, in season one with uh, Daniel Free, uh, the former ambassador, former yeah, U.S. ambassador of Poland, yep. Daniel Free, yep. uh, former U.S. ambassador of Poland, who essentially said, you know, yes, of course, you know, the, the, the liberal left in countries like the U.S. and the U.K., can have uh, a lot of qualms about Poland. Obviously, the govern the government party is a sort of, uh, you know, nationalistic uh, party, the the Law and Justice Party. But at the end of the day, we can. We, uh, Daniel uh, Ambassador Fried said the following: 
we can uh, we can get on with the Poles. Yeah. Essentially, Poland is such an important country to the West yeah. uh, at large that uh, no matter the the qualms with uh, on specific areas of policy with the government, essentially at the end of the day, we all come around to this view that Poland is just so important as yeah. a as a geopolitical actor. I mean, it's yeah. strategically located, obviously, as a you know, uh, near to Russia, but yeah. also a very strong uh, supporter of the transatlantic alliance. So there, there's no way, uh, there, there's no denying that. There's, there's one thing yeah, that I think it was Francois you mentioned on um, Russia's role in this. I don't know that Lukashenko funneling Kurdish migrants towards the Polish border and Lithuanian borders is necessarily in Russia's interest because it's it's hard in the solidarity between Brussels and the more distant Eastern Central European states, where there's usually something of a disconnect. It, it, there's a lot more solidarity that you're seeing in terms of the statements and then the proposals for action. So I'm not necessarily sure that, I mean, Lukashenko is something of a wild card in a lot of his actions. Not, I mean, you mentioned it with his kidnapping of a, a blogger from a jet. Uh, it, it doesn't seem something that would necessarily benefit Russia to be causing a crisis on the border that it's leading these countries to turn to Brussels and to increase European solidarity. No, but it, it's Russia's a patron. Yes. But I, yeah, I mean, they're a patron, but I don't, I don't, this isn't something I think Putin would want to do. No. If you're trying to destabilize Poland, I don't think you would call Lukashenko and say, let's start funneling. No, no that, that, that's, that's a good point. That's a very good point. But Russia gives Lukashenko the security he needs to be able to do reckless things like that. Um, right. Yes. Um, but yeah, I want to go back to my kind of um, segue, which I thought was really neat. So please do not interrupt my segue. Um, <laughs> there are many different issues on which um, outside powers have um, uh, blackmail, essentially, on, on, on Europe. On immigration with Turkey, we saw that with how they can funnel, um, um, they, with what well, they can threaten to funnel immigrants into Europe. Um, there's also the whole kind of um, Turkish community in Germany mm-hmm. being very nationalistic and potentially could cause trouble, but um, this is one issue. Second issue, which is kind of trade, um, again, with Germany, whenever you'd get Trump or the uh, Chinese um, premier threatening um, to put tariffs on, on cars, mostly, um, Germany would fold. So this kind of other area in which we were very much dependent. And there's a third area in which we are dependent, and that's my segue, it's on energy, uh, because we are so dependent on Russian gas that essentially that's another way we get blackmailed by foreign powers. And this is why, this is my segue. Um, We are now going to move in the whole um, energy crisis because right now um, there is massive energy crisis. I think, I uh, yes, there's been a 450% price increase increase in in energy costs since um, January, um, which is ludicrous. Um, Why? Because essentially, well, first of all, there's this COVID recovery. So there's a huge increase in demand. And so that's kind of, there's not, not much we can do about it. Um, but more generally, we've realized that 50% of our, well, sorry, 90% of our natural gas is imported in the EU. And nearly half of that gas comes from Russia. So what Russia is doing is for Gazprom, Gazprom essentially will, will give us, um, will fulfill its contracts. So we've got contracts with Gazprom and Gazprom is still providing the energy it is contracting. But there's been a huge market liberalization of the energy market in the past uh, decade or so. And now we rely a lot more on on on-the-spot purchases of gas. Um, And so what this means is Gazprom and Russia is essentially stopping those those on-the-spot market purchases. 
which means we are hugely dependent on Russia and we're realizing right now there's not much we can do. Um, and we are realizing how much leverage the Russians have. So we're realizing all across Europe that we are in a tough pot. And I think Spain are actually starting to put some uh, price control measures over the past few weeks because they're realizing it could be an issue. But there's another kind of um, uh, cause to this entire um, ruckus right now. Um, and on the record, I think um, I think one of one, if not more, European countries will have a blackout, will be on the verge of a blackout this winter. Um, uh, usually we manage to stockpile of energy um, for the winter. But right now the, the, um, the stockpiles are pretty low and we are not used to that. Usually we're able to do pretty well before winter and this time we've been uh, running out um, before the winter. So, you know, if it's a cold winter especially, it's going to be a really, really tough time. But something, on, something else we have to realise is we are also going in Europe through a phase of environmental transition. We are relying a lot less on gas, on a lot less on coal than before. And so we are trying to push for renewables. The issue is renewables are that reliable um, when there's no sun or no wind. We can't rely on them. Um, and they haven't been able to pick up as much as we wanted to. At the same time, we have this kind of German fear of nuclear, which means they've abandoned all their nuclear plants. And I think Belgium has followed the lead and also seem to be banning their nuclear plants. France nearly went that way, but we are kind of pivoting away from the kind of discourse which was dominant in the 2010s. And as a result now, we are realizing um, that the environmental transition we, we touted for obvious reasons, we need, we need to do it. We completely underestimated the kind of um, cost it would have. And I think we saw that coming with the uh, Gilets jaunes crisis. Uh, and this is a topic we will actually dive um, in more details in the future. It's kind of tension between um, can we have the cost of this um, environmental transition in a democracy? Mm. Can a government um, shoulder the not only the kind of uh, financial cost, but also the democratic cost of saying to everyone, well, we are not paying enough for energy in our day-to-day life. Mm. We need to, I think, you know, I think on average Europeans pay less than 5% of their income on energy, mm. which is in kind of grand scheme of things, not much. Um, if we are serious about the transition, it's going to have to cost us a lot more. And I think people are not realizing it. And I'm really thinking, to what extent can we do that transition in a kind of liberal regime? Or to what extent are we going to have to kind of have a much more authoritarian or aristocratic approach to, to politics for us to implement this, um, this grand scheme? And I was really interested, actually, um, GB News, which is not doing too hard. But when, when it had still, had, still had the great Andrew Neil on the show... Actually, I had Richie Sunak come talk about, you know, whatever Richie Sunak talks about when you're the chancellor. But one of the questions I thought, thought was really interesting was on the environmental transition um, process that England is, uh, the UK is going through. And it was really interesting because usually when Richie Sunak talks to the press in this kind of situations, the question he will always get from journalists saying is, we're not going far enough. Do you think we're going far enough? Uh, why 2015 or not 2014? So on, so on. But for once, Andrew Neil took the opposite stance, saying, okay, well, you're saying this. This is going to cost X amount for the British taxpayer, for British gas buyer every month. This is going to be an extra £100 here and £100 here. And, and, and Sunak was really uncomfortable because all of a sudden he has to pivot his defence, saying, well, actually, it's not going to be that impactful. Whereas when he has to talk to a kind of all um, centre-left leaning journalists, he has to say, well, actually, we are very bold and ambitious. So I thought it was really, really interesting that we are not, actually, we're not thinking this about this in political terms because the implications for our finances, 
for our energy, but also for our democracy, I think is huge. I think, you know, one thing, this might be a bold statement to make. I do think the decision by Germany to abandon nuclear power will go down as one of the worst policy decisions of the last decade. Hmm. Uh, the reasoning for it, and there was a panel at the COP26 conference, Gillian yep. Tett of the Financial Times was interviewing the head of the IAEA, yep. and she was pushing the head of the IAEA on nuclear power and suggesting that it wasn't a safe alternative and cited the Fukushima uh, disaster, hmm. to which I think it's, I can't remember his name or her name, um, said only one, no people had died from radiation yep. poisoning at Fukushima. I think one person has and it was uh, quite recently. And it was um, like 80 plus or something, I think. Yes. It, no no one died. And I think France's leadership on nuclear energy and really pushing the European Commission to get that in, obviously nuclear plants take a long time to build. And there's another, I mean, you've talked about blackmail. The only countries really with expertise on building nuclear plants are Russia, China, the French, I guess South Korea as well. Yep. But there aren't many friendly nations that have that expertise on how to build up these reactors. So although it's a long-term um, energy solution, it still puts you, makes you reliant on the kindness of strangers. Yep. No, absolutely. And um, I saw I saw the interview talking about, and when he says um, Fukushima hasn't killed anyone, the entire audience bursts out laughing. Is the most awkward scene, and he just kind of stops and you know, kind of chads it and says, "Yeah, absolutely, um, no one died." Um, here's here's the data. Um, I think we have to realize any energy source we will be using has a cost. Um, nuclear has a cost, which is mainly the, the kind of nuclear um, debris um, this year. Yeah, yeah, nuclear debris. Yeah, um, yeah. nuclear has a PR problem. Waste, waste, nuclear waste, and but. Like, it, it's a big issue, and we're not really sure what to do with it, undeniably. Um, we're, we're digging in very deep. Uh, but at the same time, I think if you put all the nuclear waste of France since, I don't know, since the 1950s, um, I think you can fill a Olympic pool, which is a lot, but also kind of a grand scheme of things, not that much, to be fair. Um, so it definitely has disadvantages with kind of physical risks and so on and so on, undeniably. But I think if we are serious about this, a whole environmental transition on the European scale. Um, we have to be serious about nuclear. And that's something actually which France has been trying to do, saying, okay, we've got an energy crisis. And at the same time, it's become this demonization of nuclear power in the past decade, mainly because Germany has kind of been pushing that kind of demonization after it decided to leave um, uh, nuclear. But I think what's quite clear is no one in Europe actually agrees on what to do, or in the EU, nobody in the EU actually agrees what to do on energy. Um, the French want um, the price, um, the price of energy, to be closer to the price of production in each country. Obviously, since France is producing very cheap nuclear energy, they're quite interested in that. Spain has been pushing grouped gas purchases, but nobody wants that because they they think it's too messy and, and unwieldy. But Spain thinks it'd be a good idea because it would allow us to kind of buy at a cheaper price. But what I think in Poland wants Poland and Hungary want to get rid of carbon quotas. They're like, you know, this is this is an opportunity. We might as well throw throw this in. But what I think is quite clear, nobody agrees on anything. And I think we will go to the brink of chaos in, in you know, January or something before anything gets done. Because I, I think people don't realize, but um, we are on the verge of a major, major catastrophe. And um, uh, either we will be uh, bought out by the Russians who will you know, give us a, a, a juicy deal in exchange of political compromises, um, or we, we, we find a solution. But I think right now it's, it's looking like we're heading straight into chaos. 
mean, what's the, what's the line from Richard III? Now is the winter of our discontent. Yeah, that, that, that's that's very much what we're facing. And the I mean, you mentioned with the the gilets jaunes, yep. the political ramifications from this in the way that a fuel crisis or blackouts across major countries in Europe yep. can spiral very quickly into mass political protests yep. and movements against incumbent powers and the potential that has for destabilizing the politics of certain countries. Obviously, France has an election coming up yep. next year. This is, it's not going to be a sort of a one winter of higher energy prices and blackouts and some tough problems. This is going to be something that has a ripple effect for yeah. years down the line in terms yeah. of its effect on European policy and yeah. European leadership. Yeah, right. especially because one of the first thing um, for, 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 for Greens, the Greens, the Liberals and the Social Democrats in Germany agreed on in their coalition agreement was actually uh, accelerating uh, the end of um, coal energy in Germany. Which is only going to make that you know, coal energy is obviously uh, horrible for environmental reasons, but it's not going to make our, our energy situation much better. Um, and I think yeah, I think there's a really absence of thinking on kind of political terms of of, of, all, of all this. But yeah, I think Julian's winter of dis- discontent was a, a great place to to conclude on. Um, thanks a lot, Julian. Thanks a lot, Jorge. Um, thanks a lot for all of you for sticking around for this bonus episode, this medley of of, of topics, and. Um, I guess see you next week also don't forget if you like the show you can support us on our patient patron and uh, currently we have a few patrons very generous patrons thank you to all of you um we would like in the future if we have enough of you to actually um give you special content special episodes maybe longer episodes uh, interact with you more um so we are i think close to that kind of threshold um but if you guys want to join us um and be part of the uncommon decency patron and the uncommon decency adventure we would love to have you with us. So with that said, thank you, Julian. Thank you, Jorge. And see you next week. See you next week.